Welcome back to the IPM on the Fly podcast, where we talk to experts about a wide variety of topics in integrated pest management. This series is brought to you from the University of Georgia Extension IPM program with funding from the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Thanks for tuning in. We're your hosts, Emily and Michelle. We're going to talk about weeds today. And how to get rid of weeds. Mm -hmm. Aren't you excited? (laughs) So we talked with Nick Basinger, who is a researcher here at the University of Georgia. Weed specialist. Weed specialist. And his PhD student, David Weisberger, and their research on cover crops in cotton production. Although it's not as humorous as some of our other conversations have been. It's it's very informative. Very informative. Mm -hmm. So, guys, what are you doing all day with weeds? Well, for one, weeds are fascinating. I think weeds do not get enough credit for how fascinating they truly are. In terms of integrated weed management, basically the concept of integrated weed management is to think about a toolbox and think about all the tools that you have in that toolbox. And we have tools that are from organic management, We have tools that are from traditional ag, so chemical management. We have basically, if you want to think about it, what we're trying to do is put all of that together. And so what we're trying to do through the use of using cover crops is to add a tool into what we normally think of as traditional agricultural production to basically suppress some of those weeds. Okay, so your your focus with integrated weed management is cover crops is what you're saying? Mm-hmm. When we're talking about cover crops and the way we are, we're talking about a crop that is not harvested for mm-hmm. cash purposes. Okay. So in integrated weed management programs, there's sort of an, an understanding that as opposed to just a purely conventional, purely chemical approach, weeds are an existential presence. They're always going to be there. So what you're trying to do is select the populations of weeds at the times of the years that aren't going to damage your cash crop as much as possible. So, David, what role do you play in this research? Sure. So my PhD project involves the use of two annual cover crops and one perennial cover crop. So an annual cover crop is something that's planted after the cash crop is harvested. So in our instance, we're using cotton. So a cover crop could be cereal rye, which is a grass, or it could be crimson clover, which is the legume that we use. So both of those are planted in the fall. They grow throughout the winter when nothing else would be growing normally. And then they're terminated with herbicide and a large cylindrical drum in the spring. We then would plant our cash crop into those and then the cash crop will grow throughout the season. Into the residue? Exactly. Okay, so you're not tilling that under? We're not at all. In Georgia and nationally speaking, no-till and conservation tillage tends to be 50% of the total acres that are farmed. There are certain benefits that you get by leaving that residue on the surface. Specifically focusing on weeds, we're creating a lot of times a, a physical barrier. And so that cylindrical drum that David is talking about, it's called a roller crimper. And so it rolls and lays that cover crop down and it creates a physical mat on the soil surface that basically prevents weeds from, many of the weeds from germinating. Okay. So in addition to the two annual cover crops, we're using something that we're calling a living mulch, or that's been referred to as a living mulch in agricultural research. It's a white clover that's been developed here in Georgia called Durana. That's also planted in the fall, but it's a perennial forage. So we're just planting it one time. So it grows throughout the winter. In the spring when we're going to plant cotton, Instead of using a roller crimper, we use a special type of herbicide applicator 
Do you want to describe this part of it? Sure, sure. So what we're trying to do is we imagine you're standing out in this field, right? It's full of clover, and we need to figure out how to get a crop to grow in that. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is we're actually killing out a strip, a 10-inch strip in that mulch. We're spraying with herbicide. And then we come right back over top of that two weeks later, typically, two to three weeks later, and we are able to plant into that strip. Okay. And so you're also saving cost. I mean, you're not killing the entire crop. You're just... By applying herbicide in just that band, throughout the season, we end up reducing herbicide input costs by 70%. Oh, wow. Because instead of applying herbicide across the whole field, we're just applying it on a 10-inch band. So everything is concentrated at the same rate in that area. So does it ever become a weed itself? It could become a weed itself, and Nick, maybe you would like to talk about that. I mean, so one of the things that we're actually looking at in a separate study from what David is doing is looking at that strip that we talked about. And so one of the things that we want to try to figure out is, is there a way that we can optimize that competition without losing some of the benefits that David's been discussing? Where we can get that crop up, we can get it healthy, but we can still get the 50 pounds of nitrogen per year, 60 pounds of nitrogen per year. And we can still get the benefit of the cost savings of um, using less herbicide in that system. We can still get some of the weed suppression um, benefits. So, Where do you see highest adoption rates of cover crop usage? So the highest rates of cover crop adoption on a per acre basis or percentage of land area are in Maryland. So a lot of that has to do with really pretty hardcore regulations around groundwater quality and erosion. So what they've done is they've provided some fairly substantial uh, cost share programs beyond average ones in the rest of the country. And that's been really effective at getting pretty high adoption mm -hmm. rates. But again, I think it's important to be somewhat realistic and say that even in Maryland, which has the highest rates of cover crop adoption, we're talking about potentially around 35% of the total service area of a small state. Okay. So in Georgia, there are more cover crop acres, but it's less adopted on a per county basis. So it's around 15% of the service area of the highest adopting counties. Above or below the fall line? Most of it's in the intensively row cropped area below the below fall the fall line. line. Mm -hmm. It sounds like these are things that you're improving on these efficiencies over time. But cover crops aren't new. So where did we move away from cover crops, and and why is there still so much to be known about cover crop usage? Georgia has actually become a more diverse agricultural state in terms of the things we grow. So if we think about the history of Georgia. At a certain point, there were 4 million acres of cultivated row crop in Georgia, and that was almost entirely cut. So in certain ways, it's become a more diverse agricultural landscape. In the, what differs, let's say, before 1945 and going after 1945 World War II period is we get the increased adoption, the accessibility of synthetic nitrogen fertilizers, mm -hmm. synthetic herbicides, and mm -hmm. pesticides. So prior to that point, Farmers need to use things like legumes, which fix nitrogen, in order to get their nitrogen needs for a given crop. From that period onwards, it's much easier and it's much more simple to put out X amount of nitrogen in the form of fertilizer and know that that's exactly what you're getting. Mm -hmm. right? It's much easier and simple to just use a herbicide to control weeds. And for a certain period of time, that was highly effective in managing those things. What we've had happen in the last 20 to 30 years is there's adverse environmental effects of using these sorts of 
synthetic inputs. And particularly with wheats, we've got a resistance issue. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to let Nick talk a little bit about resistance. I think one of the biggest issues that we're dealing with in wheat science right now is, res is resistance. Okay. Bar none. That's the thing that everybody's talking about is we talk about the toolbox or we have all these fantastic chemical tools that we've relied on, as David mentioned, for, for quite some time. Some of those tools are starting to wear out. A lot of times when I hear about resistance and avoiding resistance, I hear people say, rotate class. Mm -hmm. But is that not enough? I don't think it is. And I think part of the reason, uh, I, think that, I think that you should continue to rotate your, your herbicide mechanisms of action. That's key to basically limiting it, the further development of resistance to new herbicides. And I guess I should go back and clarify. Can you explain mode of action or class when we say rotate class of herbicides? What, what does that mean? Right. So, you know, herbicides kill plants in different ways. So most folks are familiar with glyphosate or Roundup. So the way in which Roundup kills a plant is not the same way that, say, something like atrazine, which I think a lot of other folks are familiar with. Right, so the, they both kill weeds, right? The end result is the same, the weeds are dead, but the way in which they kill weeds from the, the inside is not the same. Right? And they're in different, so then they're so in they, different so classes. Each, each one of those would be in a different class. Right? And now, or, or, or a lot down. of herbicides are also starting to get knocked off the list of, of use. Yeah. So they're not any longer being labeled um, they're getting phased. Certain ones are being phased out. Um, the biggest one, yeah. I, I mean, I, I can talk about that. David mentioned. David was uh, mentioning kind of the cost of inputs. I was talking with one of the station directors here, at one of the UGA Research and Education Centers, yesterday, and he was talking about how the price of inputs has just basically doubled and tripled. Is that due to in part with the production and shipping delays that we're seeing? So part of that is production and shipping delays. The other part of that is. Um, with all of the litigation that's happened with, with Bayer and, and glyphosate, they have decided to discontinue the production of Roundup. So has this news spread that Roundup's going to be a, less available? It's been available? in the news <laughs> since the spring. What's interesting about that is Roundup will not be sold anymore, but all of the generic glyphosates will Thank still you. be sold. So they basically are saying, we've lost enough of this. We're not selling glyphosate anymore. Or yeah. Roundup, or Roundup. glyphosate. Not, Bayer is not going to be selling Roundup anymore. Right. But glyphosate will still be available for consumption by farmers, homeowners, but it won't be under the bear name anymore. Okay. So what I'm hearing, and you can correct me, is looking at the big picture forward, either chemical companies, ag chemical companies are going to develop new chemicals, new herbicides, which would still be a liability potentially, which are still going to have the same issues, or they can start adopting at a higher level what's oldest new, I guess you would call it, with the cover crops, because there's always going to be a fight with weeds and you're going to have to address it. I think that cover crops should be seen as a way of complementing or mm -hmm. synergizing well with herbicides. I would agree large So you're never going to be able to completely not use herbicides. I think at this moment, you cannot reduce herbicide use as far as the rates that we're using. Or you'll reduce what so your output is. What I wouldn't producing. suggest people cut down on their rates and use a half rate or use less. Mm -hmm. Initially <laughs> though, what you need to do is use those cover crops to provide that mat. So what you want to do is you want to shrink the literal size of the weeds. Mm -hmm. Right? So if you have that mat, you reduce the amount of light, the weeds are going to take longer to come up and they're going to be smaller when they come up. Mm -hmm. If you are then using the same rate of herbicide, you're going to be able to limit that population size. 
And that's what you want to do initially. So this is not an either or, this is a both and. Well, remember, we're talking about integrated weed management. Right. We're using all the tools in the toolbox, not just saying we're going to get rid of the chemical tool. We'll mm -hmm. throw the chemical tool out the window. This idea of integrated weed management, we're extending the life and the utility of our other tools because we're using multiple tools at one time. I think that there are producers in the Southeast, the Midwest, and other parts of the U.S. that are finding ways of completely reducing or drastically reducing their herbicide inputs mm -hmm. because they've tweaked their cover crop system such that they're able to produce so much biomass and early on they were able to eliminate so many weeds or reduce the population mm -hmm. so low mm -hmm. that they're now able to reduce that use. Okay. I wouldn't suggest at the beginning anyone right. start reducing right. how much herbicide they use. Yeah. I'm all for reducing the amount of synthetic inputs that we use in agriculture. I think it's important for lots of the different uh, reasons that we mentioned today. But initially, I don't think that's where we're at. So I'm a farmer, and I'm, I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, dang, this is complicated. You're, just, you're adding some work to me, and I, I don't have enough hours in the day now. How do you convince, if you, you get good data from your research, how do you convince the farmers out there to implement this? Or so I think that's obviously challenging, and that's the main challenge with cover crops generally. So in the state of Georgia, just with annual cover crops, and that's primarily cereal rye, adoption rates for cover crops in Georgia are about 15%. And that's in the highest adopting counties. Mm. So what's, what's fostering adoption in those counties is cost share programs like EQIP and CSP. So which are, which th are what? Those what are government that? programs that provide up to 75% of the costs or the expenses that you might put into cover crop seed. Okay, okay. Just seeds? Just seeds. Okay. Yeah. And those are for... Um, water conservation, soil conservation, water quality issues. Mm. And I think that lumping in something like a living mulch system under those programs could be highly beneficial. So I think that's one thing. That's the levers of using some sort of federal or state programming or support. I think the other thing worth thinking about is the fact that farmers have pretty high costs each year. So in this system, the living mulch system particularly, that living mulch, because it's a legume, will take nitrogen from the air and fix it in the soil. And it will do that, and it'll fix it at about a rate of 50 to 60 pounds per acre. So in the systems that we've been using here, in Watkinsville anyway, we've not added any supplemental nitrogen to that system. So that's a cost off the ledger. The other thing is we talked about a 70% reduction in herbicide costs. That's another cost off the ledger. So we know that initially, the cost of the Durana seed is quite high. But if you're keeping that system in the ground because it is a perennial plant, over a series of years, four or five years, you're amortizing that cost over those years. So what are some of the biggest mistakes that people make that might be discouraging for them when they're trying to implement using cover crops? The things that I've heard from other farmers that I've spoken with over the years is that, let's say you try something and it's an utter failure the first time you try it. Mm -hmm. Your likelihood of trying it again is usually gonna be pretty low. Mm -hmm. Maybe just start with an acre or two. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes people will they go all in. They go, go all they're in. like, if, it, if, it's, mm -hmm. if it's good, let's just go the whole hog. Let's just do the whole thing. And then it's a massive failure. And then, and then it's they're so like, oh, never doing that again. Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. The second thing I see is that I think a lot of people may not do the adequate research or ask enough questions. Mm -hmm. They're potentially getting a cost share. And I'm not trying to rag anyone by saying this, but they may put that cover crop too in. Let's say they're planting it too late. Mm -hmm. So they're getting a very minimal amount of biomass. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it's broadcast and not planted well. Maybe it's planted into a poor seed bed. 
those things would limit how good that cover crop could be. So then in the spring, you're left with this patchy stand of cover crop that may only be one foot tall. And you may be saying to yourself, what is this? I thought this was supposed to be a bunch of biomass, help me suppress my weeds. I know I paid 10 bucks an acre for this. I'm not seeing any return on investment. Yeah. I think those are the situations where things aren't working well and farmers are really reluctant to keep trying. So the farmers that have adopted cover crops in Georgia that you work with, wouldn't they be the best advocates for getting adoption? So part of my research involves some social science research, and we've been talking to farmers and extension agents and agrochemical salespeople throughout Georgia. And we find the areas that are adopting are small local areas where neighbors can talk to each other and there's mm -hmm. been a success story. And they can kind of pass that on. And that's happening naturally in those networks of communication. And I think we really need to find ways of creating these little networks or pods where farmers can collaborate with each other. Mm -hmm. They can get unbiased points of view from extension and they have outlets to things like seeds from agrochemical. Maybe share equipment. Exactly. Yeah. So I think community to, support. It sounds like if you have a good community support exactly. system. And I think keeping it at that county level, mm -hmm. I think that's really important. Well, and I think some of our agents are, are really great kind of champions of cover crops too. Would you agree with that, David? I think it's a mixed bag. Yeah. And I don't mean again to, I think that right now, for the most part, it's really challenging to farm. It's always been challenging, but particularly now. Inputs are going higher and higher. The cost you get per crop is getting lower and lower. So farmers are kind of crunched between these two things. Mm -hmm. So I think the goal is to, generally speaking, extension nationwide, to find really economically relevant, economically important management practices. And for right now, I think that really means focusing on the continued use of these synthetic inputs. So as a faculty member here teaching weed science, do you feel that responsibility or are you, are you kind of an advocate in your classroom? You, you've got a, a broad spectrum of students from all the disciplines, mm -hmm. I'm going to guess. I know you have entomology students yeah, in there. Yeah, entomology, turf grass, I mean, um, horticulture, animal science. science. I'm thinking anybody animal with science. any kind of farming would yeah. be dealt, need to take that class. Yep. So are you able to address this, educate them at this age? knowing they're the future agricultural leaders? Absolutely, I mean, we. so I've restructured my weed science class to have more of an integrated weed management kind of bent, right? So that's that's the direction that I've kind of reoriented that class to where, where we say, all right, these are all of the options that we that we have in, from a weed science, through the weed science lens. I gave examples of some of the new, like robotic weeders that they have that kill weeds with lasers. And I mean, there's like, we're getting pretty futuristic here in terms of, you know, weed control and weed science, you know, moving into the future. And I think those students need to, you know, see that and see that there are options like, you know, how do they, how can they, because most of these folks are coming from a farm background mm. and they're the ones that are going back and their parents are saying, all right, we pay for you to go to this great school called UGA. <laughs> Let's see what yeah. you can do now. Yeah, what'd right? you learn? And Let's that's, and show that's, us something. <laughs> and that's what we want. You know, we want them to, to leave UGA with some of those skills to be able to say, I can make my farm sustainable from the day that I step back on that farm until it's time for me to pass it on to my kids and grandkids. And so, you know, it's my job to educate them as best as I can so that they can go back. So we do talk about all the different ways that we can change Weed well, science for for the future. Yeah, it just sounds like like talking about the community level with the farmers now. It, all of it comes down to 
almost simply just education, education, you know, just. Mm -hmm. I think that UGA does a good job and has done a good job historically at researching things like integrated weed management, studying cover crops and how nitrogen works with cover crops. So I think it's out there, but I think what you said again is increasing education, increasing the programmatic events and things like this, I think are really important. Are you seeing in any of your data that hands down, you think every farmer should be using cover crops? So I would never say every farmer should use cover crops because I think every context is slightly different. I think it's really good for every farmer to cover their soil. So I think it would be good for every farmer, I'll back up, I think it would be good for every farmer to use cover crops. That being said, I think there are situations where just covering the soil and preventing soil erosion may be adequate. There's other situations where if you have the time and wherewithal to generate a ton of biomass and to be able to suppress weeds the following season would be really positive. I think it's really important to let farmers experiment. Again, and just the number one thing of cover crops is cover it up. So I think the baseline should be, okay, get something out there. So is that the most important thing you think then is reducing erosion? I think the soil stuff is super important, of course, because that's the natural resource base upon which everything is Mm -hmm. reliant. So I'm completely on board with that. So I think there are different goals that you might have with cover cropping. We're weed scientists. So if I'm talking about managing weeds, suppressing weeds, my goal, if I'm talking with producers, is always to say, you need to generate as much biomass, have as thick a blanket as possible in the spring when you're going to plant your cash crop. If we're talking about folks who have livestock and are trying to make money in other ways, maybe it's really important for you to have forage and graze those cover crops. I think depending on your context and what your goal is, I think that's how you should lead in terms of your cover crop use. As we mentioned, this Durana clover that we're using as a living mulch wasn't bred or anything like that as a living mulch. It was originally a forage, it was a forage legume. Right, so we're just taking it out of that forage context and using it in this agronomic system. And so I would agree with David in the sense that, you know, you have to you have to look at your context, you have to look at your goals, you have to you know assess what you're trying to achieve, and, and even assess like should this land even be in agronomic production? Mm-hmm. Should we put this back in the pasture? Do we plant trees here? You know, there there are some instances in some fields and driving through Georgia that I'm like that really does not need to be in ag production. Mm-hmm. And it's because, you know, there's issues with erosion and, and a lot and just a number of other things, right? And so I think it's important for a grower to assess like, hey, you know, am I really maximizing the utility of this land? Um, and is it sustainable for the long term? I was reading High Plains Journal and they had a list of things that said facts to know about cover crops. And I I paused at the number two one that said, I'll read it to you. Don't experiment with cover crops in a field next to a highway or next to a loudmouthed neighbor. Do you got any idea what that's about? Because I was like, what what what's that about? (laughs) I think that if you're bucking a trend, so if the trend is in your county, every year you harvest cotton in October, November, you mow the stalks, the stalks are there, you let them lie, maybe you burn down the winter weeds with a herbicide, and then you wait your couple months and you plant cotton again in the spring. If that's the trend in your area and you're the one farmer that's got huge green biomass of cereal rye out in the field, you may stand out a little. Mm. And maybe that may not be the most comfortable thing for you. 
Mm-hmm. And if it, if it if things turn upside down, they'll never let you they'll forget never it. Let you, they'll never <laughs> let you forget it, and you'll never try again. Yeah. Right. And so it's again, it's it's one of these things where we've talked about kind of building this community around cover crops and mm-hmm. how that, like David said, has been where the success really lies. Right. So, you know, it, it might be one of those things where it's just if you're trying it out for the first time, you know. Do it somewhere you, on the back 40. You, you do it as your secret project, <laughs> right? And then when it's a success, you bring everybody out and, and say, yeah. look at this. Yes. Then look you put it on I the did, field by the road. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so, and, and it, you know, it also may be something, too, where it's always great, and when we're talking about support here, it's always great if you say, hey, I got a fellow, I got a fellow grower. We've been buddies for a long time. Like, let's do this thing together. Let's just kind of try it out. And that way we bounce ideas off of each other. And like, hey, maybe you're talking to somebody that like I'm not talking to. And, you know, it's it's a situation where sometimes that support really is critical to making it a success. And it's, you know, it's like you're not tinkering your garage by yourself. You got somebody else to kind of like help you tinker. So to close out, you both are resources. But if I was listening to this and I was wanting to get some direct responses, who would I reach out to? Where would I go? Well, I think the NRCS is a good, is a good place. That's the Natural Resource Conservation Service. Yeah, okay. they're, pushing a lot of, um, they're pushing a lot of cover crops. I mean, right now, shameless plug, I am part of the, what's called the Southern Cover Crops Council. Um, what the Southern Cover Crops Council does is they are in the business of collecting as much information as possible on cover crops. And there is a website that folks can go to. Um, it's southerncovercrops.org. Um, and there are information sheets on the utility of those cover crops, where to get some of the seed. There's a lot of information on there as well as some information sheets on how to plant cover crops, how to terminate cover crops. Basically, a lot of the things that we've talked about today, there's additional information at southerncovercrops.org. Um, they're on Instagram. They're you know they're on social media, Facebook. We are also in the process of developing a cover crop selector tool for the southeast. So basically, this would allow you to say, I want to suppress weeds. I want to increase my organic matter, and I want you know a supplemental nitrogen. And so it'll say, all right. Here's four legumes that suit your area in Georgia based on your county. Soil type. Soil type, all that sort of stuff. Crop grown. Exactly. Um, I will also give a plug. February of 2023, we're going to have a Southern Cover Crops Council conference, and it's going to be in Louisiana this this time. So it's a really great time that's far enough out to where you can make plenty of plants. Hopefully, you know, Things will calm down by that point, um, but it'll be an opportunity. It's it's a meeting that's open to academics, to students, to growers, um, and if you're really interested in kind of looking at cover crops um, and what what the possibilities are, all the hot shots will be there from throughout the southeast. Um, folks that are doing breeding all the way through, you know, the grower that has come up with the coolest new thing in terms of cover crops. There's usually demonstrations and things like that. I think also, so for the social science work that I've done, you know, we've gone to extension in lots of different counties. And if they weren't as familiar with cover crop usage and how things agronomically may work, 
at the very least, they could connect us with a farmer in their county that was experienced and knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So I think that extension is a good outlet for any producer in the state. And I think if they don't know, they're very clear about that. And they're going to do their best to connect you with someone that is a good source of knowledge. Right. So reach out to your agent I and they'll, they'll, they'll help you get in touch with the right yeah, person. Yeah, I mean, and I think that also, again, goes back to this building of community, right? Yeah. So um, it's going to help. It's going to help you understand what really works in your county and it works in your area and what folks have done and what they haven't done. Um, and so that would be a good place to start. County agents. County agents. They're, yep. they're what makes it all work, really. Well, this was super informational. I've had fun. This has been This good. was fun, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we've given you and your listeners something to think about. Yeah. Thank you both very much. Cool. Thank you. So this was a different interview that we did mm -hmm. compared to the first three. Yep, took a left turn over away from the insects. I feel like weeds are a common denominator. No one likes them. No one likes them. Everyone has them. But it's pretty time-consuming and intensive work, you know, to make a choice to use cover crops. Mm -hmm. and but people used to do it. Yeah. We learned. What's old is new. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed learning about a different approach for weed management. Yep. yep. Never thought of a toolbox in that sense. Mm -hmm. I guess my best tool would be some kind of hammer to use on a weed. Right. And maybe the I hammer. I want the hammer. <laughs> yeah. And the hammer in this case would be chemical herbicides, mm -hmm. which they're not telling people not to use them. Yeah, but it does, in today's world, kind of make you feel like you're the bad person for wanting to, you know. Man, that stubborn weed, that cover crop's just not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Got to get it out of here. And I mean, I think about it as a homeowner, how frustrating they can be. So as a farmer, mm -hmm. oh my, mm -hmm. it's like that battle of, you know, battle of wills, who's going to win? Yep, and you're relying on it, on whatever tools you're using so that, that your business survives. Well, and that my dinner plate doesn't go empty because, you know, it, it production matters with mm -hmm. it. I didn't realize how much weeds can affect what's produced per acre. Yep, how it affects the yield. Mm -hmm. Well, in this case, too, these guys mostly focus on cotton. And I don't think we think about that when we talk about agriculture i think most people think about vegetables or what we're going to eat mm -hmm. but that cotton what you're going to wear well i've got all cotton on today so are you wearing all cotton pretty much good for you my jeans my jacket well i don't know about my tennis shoes but my socks yeah i'm pretty sure my pants are made of plastic <laughs> are you sure it could be some plant-based plastic there might be <laughs> all right well that was fun I hope everybody listening learned something new and has a newfound appreciation for finding all the different tools in the toolbox. Yes. Of IPM, or in this case, integrated weed management. Thank you for joining us again on IPM on the Fly.